Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Pickens here, welcoming you to episode 70, seven zero of a thousand tiny steps. Recording this just before the Christmas show weekend, so early December, you'll be listening to it just after New Year's. So when we talk about New Year's, my my little subject matter of, of this particular podcast will be some New Year's Eve experiences I've had over the years that sort of relate to the gist and the story of my life. But before I start, this has been a wonderful weekend. Just had a lot of really good things happen, things that could potentially make my future more lucrative and more fun and more purposeful. And I love how the universe works. The universe works in wonderful ways. Sometimes it works in terrible ways, but that's not what we're going to talk about this time. No, 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 we're not. I have my hair straight. I don't straighten it myself much, but I had it done. My hairdresser, Kimberly, she likes to straighten my hair. In lots and lots of what I've talked about in telling my life story and in getting into season seven, which is coming up, which is going to be several really difficult episodes to share, I love to find patterns and I love to find choices and consequences and behaviors that come around again, that circle back, or that sort of seem to stand out. I have always been somebody who measures time. I remember I had a summer job after I graduated high school with ML to say, or Mary Lou. And I looked at my watch all the time. I had my watch on. I checked it all the time. And she took offense to it. She felt that rather than focusing on the work at hand, I was looking at my watch to see how much longer I had until I could leave. And while I was looking at my watch to see what time it was, it wasn't at all connected to wanting to leave. I just like to know what time it is. I like to know where I fit, where I am in the 24-hour period that is a day. It lends itself into being a distance runner because one of the biggest things in a race, it's not necessarily that I want the race to be over. But I will execute my energy in different ways, depending on how far into the race I am, how much time there is left in the race, what my goals are for the race. And so when I look at time, it's a blessing and a curse for me. I know that in dealing with Molly's death, time sort of blew up and stopped. And I still struggle with the passage of time when I look at the number of years that have gone by since something happened. Molly's death just put a big black hole in my life. And so all these years disappear. So life was going along and then it's 2016 and then she dies. And then now suddenly it's 2018. Where did those two years go? And now it's 2022. I don't really remember 2019. Like, you know, you have all these traumatic things happen and can wreak havoc with time. So I often don't like talking about it. One of the things I don't like about holidays now is that they measure time. Another year without Molly, another Christmas without Molly, another 4th of July without Molly, whatever, whatever the day is making the day big, calling it something, and then using it to commemorate something makes me realize all that I don't have. And it's hard. And the holiday season is difficult. I'm recording this going into it. You'll listen to it after I've gone through it. And it will be difficult. I know that it will. We will have good days and bad days. And through it all, we'll try to make it wonderful for Jack. So you're listening to this on January 3rd. So it's 2023 already. Happy New Year. 
So in thinking of the new year, even though I don't like the passage of time, and even though I don't like certain traditions, New Year's resolutions are often wonderful. They're easy to make because you have this, this new beginning. One thing I always loved about being a teacher was that your job started over every year. Yes, you were doing the same thing, but your whole entire workday would be completely different. But you have new students, a new schedule, you're teaching different classes. You know, the, the students you're teaching are older now. I loved that it wasn't the same thing day after day, year after year, that you had a beginning, a middle and an end over and over again. And so when I think of New Year's resolutions and all the things I want to do and the goals I set, I tend to get excited. I haven't thought too hard about New Year's resolutions. I think the biggest ones for me are getting my business off, off the ground, up and running. I'm having a much more purchasable product for people that may want to purchase what I have to offer. I want my book published. I want the podcast to grow. Mostly I just want to help people. But these are things that, that I can make into a goal. I also want to be fit. And I know I am fit. I do the CrossFit. But I want to be really fit. I would love to get back into running again. I'd like to do a triathlon. You know, as I record this, I have metal pins in my feet again. You know, so by the time you're hearing it, those will be out and I'll be able to start working out again. I'm really excited about all of those things. My next birthday will have me turning 60 years old. That makes me a little nervous, I have to be honest. But I'm excited about all that the new year has to bring. I guess I have to be. So I thought I would talk about New Year's Eve because I had some I had some pretty amazing ones in my life. I've had a variety of them. Some of them are pretty indicative of where, where I was at and what I was doing in my life. So, you know, as a small child, I don't remember them because I was little. I probably went to bed. You know, New Year's Eve was a grown-up thing. And I don't really have any recollection of New Year's Eve or even New Year's Day as a small child. My first true understanding and recollections of New Year's Eve involved Jackie Dore. Jackie was my neighbor around the corner, a year younger than me. You know, all of us neighborhood kids spanned five or six years and we all had best friends. They all varied once in a while. But Jackie and I were pretty solid. Jill, her big sister, Jill, was my grade. But Jackie and I just clicked. We really connected and we played well together. And we spent several New Year's Eves in a row together. And we had sort of our little plan. Sometimes we babysat neighborhood kids for a little while. I remember there was a little baby I babysat. It scared the crap out of me. I didn't enjoy it. So I called Jackie and she came up and hung out with me and the baby. And so we would go to my house. Typically it was at my house. And we would have a loaf of bread and a pound of ham and a pound of cheese. And we'd just eat ham and cheese sandwiches all night long. Or we'd just eat the ham, but we would eat it all by the end of the night. We would listen to AM radio, WRKO, and a DJ named Dale Gorman. And he would do the top 100 countdown. And, oh my God, we were obsessed. And I had a clock radio. And we listened on the clock radio. So I had a trundle bed in my room. So I'd pull the trundle bed out and up and she would lie on it. And I'd be on the bed and we would just, just listen and listen to these songs and make a list and write them down and sing along. We had a great, a great time doing this. We would also... Oftentimes we would re reorganize my bedroom because I had a room to myself for a number of those years. So she would help me reorganize it. And we, you know, moved posters around. And one of the things I often got for Christmas were mobiles. You hung them from the ceiling. I loved them. And I, I would always get one for Christmas every year. So I had those hanging in my room. We also made Rice Krispie treats, an entire box of Rice Krispies and an entire thing of fluff and that's an entire stick of butter to make piles of Rice Krispie treats, which we would eat and eat and eat. Breakfast with her was always fun as well. Captain Crunch and Fruit Loops, and we'd just sit at the table and you poured it in and you poured the milk, and then there was still milk left. So you poured more cereal in, and there was still more cereal. So you poured more milk. And eventually, you can see Jackie and I used to like to eat. But we also played outside for hours. We'd go sliding and we'd go ice skating at White's Park and we'd build snow forts. We spent hours and hours playing outside. Jackie was really, I think she epitomizes my childhood. She had a big wheel. 
I don't know that I ever had. I feel like I did. Then I rode big wheels around too, but it's not a memory in my life as strong as it is with her. She loved her big wheel. That was like her, her little mode of freedom, her big wheel. Those were how I remember New Year's Eve as, as a youngster and heading into middle school. Middle school and early high school, my brother was older than me. So when I was in middle school, he was in high school. And so New Year's Eve now was attached to parties. I didn't go to very, very many parties, especially in middle school. I wasn't in the popular group and I didn't really have a keen understanding of it. But I had a different next door neighbor when I was in middle school, J.R. Barnes. The Barnes lived next door to me and he had a younger brother, Rusty. And again, I was probably better friends with Rusty than J.R. But I spent hours with this family and their little sister, Lenny, was Jonathan and Johanna's age. And so hours and hours outside, Rusty and I would talk and talk and talk. Oh God, we had plans for our lives. We would just go over and over things. We went to St. Paul's Church. And so I spent some time with them at church as well. And I can remember a couple of New Year's Eves that involved them. And I think probably we were just out and about in the neighborhood, just neighborhood shenanigans. But I remember those New Year's Eves as well as being much more oriented around playing outside. Alcohol wasn't a piece of it yet. Even the stroke of midnight wasn't a piece of it yet. It was just a night that we were allowed to stay up late. And I think I liked it. They didn't turn into drug fests until I got into high school and started hanging out with my track and field buddies and the Fearsome Five. And this was when somebody, somebody somewhere was having a New Year's Eve party. And that would mean that we would go to the party and that we would get really drunk. What I remember most about New Year's Eve parties in high school is how high schooly they were, how much fun they were. Usually there was a keg. The drinking age then too was 18. So a lot of people hosting the parties were fully able to host the parties. Remember all these drinking games, bumper, where everyone had a sign and you had to do your sign. Or maybe my sign would be like, I'm flapping my hands over my ears. And then maybe someone else's sign would be, waving under their chin. And so you would do your sign and somebody else's and then they would do their sign and someone, you know, you'd go around until you goofed. We did TV games like the Bob Newhart show. Every time somebody said Bob, you had to drink. There weren't huge beer games like there is now. There was no beer pong and all that kind of stuff. It was just, it was much more organic, I think. Oftentimes there was a campfire, bonfire, people sitting around. Oftentimes the parties were in the woods. And really the drink of choice was typically beer. And that was really what most people drank. But again, New Year's Eve was, was alcohol. I don't remember, you know, any romantic New Year's Eve or New Year's Eve kisses. That was never anything I really experienced. When I went to college, so my first two years of college, I was home over Christmas break. So New Year's Eve was home. In my college years, probably the biggest New Year's Eve was 82 to 83. It was my sophomore year. And this was such a fun night. I was in my room. It was a whole bunch of, it was me and Sally Schlelly. We got all dressed up and then Karen and her sister, Kelly came over, Katie, Karen DePalma and Kelly. But I have these pictures of us all getting ready in the bedroom. We didn't know what we were getting ready for. We just knew that the whole entire sort of White's Park gang was going to meet outside on Essex Street and decide what to do. And so we were out there. And so, you know, I was a college sophomore now. So like Jack and Tony were college seniors and Ricky would have graduated. And we had everybody. We just had this whole entire huge range of people, three, four cars worth of people. We were standing around on Essex Street. What do we do? What do we do? And I said, well, I have an apartment in Boston. And everyone just looked at me and I'm like, yeah, I have the key right here. I have a, you know, it's a two bedroom apartment. We can go to my apartment. And that's what we did. So I had my giant white Oldsmobile that hadn't caught fire yet and burned up. So we carpooled down. So we stopped at Broadway's Market, which doesn't exist anymore. And we bought cases and cases of beer. Because of course you drank the whole way down. So down we went, we drove to Boston and there was a bar called The Dugout, which is in the basement of my building. And I remember... We had to sort of pull a U-turn and we all parked. We all found places to park. And there we were in my apartment. We had a blast. We partied there. We made phone calls to a lot of the people know that we were in town. 
And then we took the subway and watched the, the Boston fireworks. So that was an unbelievably fun New Year's Eve. We went back to the apartment. We were up all night. I remember Jack Frazier chucked the pot of plant out the window. It belonged to my roommate. It was funny. We just had the most amazing time. And in the morning, everyone had breakfast. We we're all hungover, of course. I remember we cooked eggs and omelets and all of that. We had a wonderful time. I remember just feeling so connected, like I belong here, like I'm a part of it. It was wonderful. After that, I really did live in the Boston area. I didn't go home much. So New Year's Eve would have been spent with David, which means they would have been spent with David's family. And I've talked a lot about how much I loved his family and how many family things they did. I don't have a lot of specific New Year's Eve memories. I remember one horrifying New Year's Eve where I was just shit-faced drunk, drove my car, should never have driven my car and crashed it. Don't remember. I woke up in the morning at David's. We'd had a fight and he's like, what did you do to your car? And I was mortified. That was much later on. I had been out of college for a while, but it was before I moved back to Concord. The chunk of New Year's Eves between BU and moving home were surrounded by Nike people. So there was a running store called Nike Wellesley. So the people at Nike Wellesley would rent a double-decker bus, one of those red double-decker buses, and we'd buy you buy tickets and you'd go on. And on the bus was alcohol and food, you know, cases of beer you know, cookies and cake and veggies and all this food. And we would drive around first night, which was in Boston. So basically you're driving through just crowds of people, but we're just drinking on this bus. So we have a sort of a sheltered place to be. And it would start and finish at the Elliott Lounge, which doesn't exist anymore. It was a famous, famous runner's bar. And we went there all the time. Just a good place to go and have simple drinks, a true Boston bar. So we would start and finish there. And that would be the New Year's Eve piece. And I remember I had Sally come with me more than once. It was just something we did. That was our tradition. And Sally was my new person. I spent a lot of Christmases and New Year's Eves with Sally because she was home from college. And home for her was Concord, where her mom lived, right near my mom. So at night, we'd do that. And then you'd go back home and you'd crash. And in the morning, you'd wake up and you'd go to Nike Wellesley and run from the Nike store all the way into the Elliott like a half of the Boston Marathon course. It's like a half marathon. And then we would stay at the Elliott all day and drink. So it was just alcohol, drink, 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 drink. It was a lot of fun. And I remember so many memories around those times dealt with runners, with David. And then a couple of years later with Sev, always bringing friends there, all my Nike Boston running friends, all of that. Those were nice times. It was a way, I think in some ways to make it less about the alcohol and more about the people, but it was just so alcohol involved. But then I moved home. And I get sober. I stop drinking. And so New Year's Eve's become very different for me now. They don't involve alcohol. When I was dating Chaz, I remember we hiked up on top of a mountain for New Year's Eve. I have a picture of me actually dumping out an empty Coca-Cola can and I'm giving up Coke. I'm giving up soda. That was my thing I was going to give up for New Year's Eve 30 years ago that I gave up drinking Coca-Cola. But they were fun. They were much more activity-based when I did, you know, I dated Chaz for a couple of New Year's Eve's. And, and again, we were outside. We were hiking in skiing and doing mountainous things. And I remember a New Year's Eve with Jim, two of them actually. One of them was a lot of fun. We went to a party like with some of his Concord Monitor friends. I have these funny pictures of me picking his nose. Just silly, silly fun times. And then one New Year's Eve, I was living in the tower. I was with Graham, with Jim, and we came, you know, went, did all our fun things. It was first night downtown. There were fireworks at midnight, all of that. We went to bed and we got up in the morning and we wanted to go out for breakfast. And so he was giving me a piggyback down the stairs. And Eva, our, my landlord, said, no, 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 turn around. You have to go out the back. Something had happened. There was someone at the bottom of the stairs. And I didn't really understand what she said. And we drove up for Warner to have breakfast. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me. I think she said, it's Terry. And my good friend, Terry Dowling, lived downstairs from me in that building. And when Jim and I got back to the building, I knocked on the door and found out that Terry had passed away. 
that was a hard New Year's Eve. That was a really hard New Year's Eve. I had a bit of a breakdown after that. Terry's death really affected me. That was a pretty significant event for a New Year's Eve, you know. It's one that stands out because I lost this really good person. It took a long time to understand, you know, he had just died of edema. I still really don't know why he died. He was 42 years old. That seems so young to me now. I wasn't even 30. And so it just seemed so old. But Terry was a big piece of my early sobriety. He was a lot of fun. Those years, you know, those are the 90s now, you know, obviously sober New Year's Eve. When I married Eric, that didn't change. Actually, we didn't do much in terms of celebration. But high faith, every 19 days is a feast. So New Year's Eve has a feast, oftentimes just get together with Baha'is. There was the walking around, though. The first night made it easy. You could just go walk around downtown. And we lived downtown. There aren't first night celebrations anymore. They were big. I remember my biological dad, Tom, used to get pissy. It's not the first night. It's the last night, which is true. It's the final night of the year. But my early sobriety years and my married to Eric years would be a lot of those kinds of things, walking around and looking at ice sculptures and you know, ordering Chinese food to eat at home and just being at home, maybe watching the ball drop. Nothing, nothing super big. Once I was no longer married to Eric and I was with Kenny, before Kenny and I were together, New Year's Eve, he and his first wife, Karen, were big partiers. And so they had parties all the time. They had a pool outside and there was always a lot of alcohol. They were big drinkers and daily drinkers and then big party drinkers. And so before Kenny and I were together, were spent there at his house with his kids and Karen and we were all partying. I, I remember a specific New Year's Eve. It was at the last New Year's Eve before Kenny and I were together. And it was freezing cold and my plans had all fallen through. And I went over and hung out over there. And I got really, really, really drunk, like horrible. My, I had like a two-day hangover. It was awful. And I had it was my first year living on Alvin Street. So it was 97 to 98. I took the Christmas tree down. I just took it down ornament by ornament. It was just one of those awful, awful hangovers. And I remember he and Karen had had a huge fight. That was sort of the beginning of the end. For Kenny and Karen, our relationship had crossed the line and it was ugly and awful. And that was a terrible New Year's Eve. And I, I remember I was no longer sober. I had started drinking again. That New Year's Eve was a bad one. And I remember Eric actually being super supportive and helpful. And my sister, Johanna, I really fell apart. I had a bad time. That whole beginning of 1998, I really spent a lot of time trying to make myself a better person and sort of regrowth. I didn't want to hurt Kenny or his family. It was a very difficult time of growth. That New Year's Eve was awful because it, it just set into motion some really rough times. When Kenny and I were finally together, we decided that, you know, going out on New Year's Eve didn't make sense. All the drinkers are out, all that, everyone's out and it's just a dangerous time to be out. So we would stay home, wouldn't go out on New Year's Eve, which was probably a good thing. And all of our New Year's Eves before children, living at Alvin Street and then pregnant with Gracie, then living where we live now, New Year's Eve was always a night to stay home. And when you have kids, where are you going to go? And the fireworks in Concord were no longer New Year's Eve. They had wonderful fireworks at the tree lighting ceremony, which takes place in November. And so there wasn't as much to do on New Year's Eve with Molly and Gracie and the children. And so we didn't. New Year's Eve was just a home night. And we maintained that practice and that pattern all through Molly and Gracie's lives. I remember Molly's last New Year's Eve, the same thing. That was a hard one. I look at that as sort of my last New Year's Eve that I really pay attention to because we had had 2015 have been a very hard year and it was bad in a million ways. Molly wasn't feeling well. Things with Kenny and I were terrible. Things with Roy and I were horribly terrible. And I had this negative sort of unhealthy pull from David in this unhealthy working situation at the, at the school. All of that, I was just pulled in 50 different directions, none of which were healthy or well. And I remember Molly and Gracie and I put our hands in the middle like a power circle, like this is going to be the best year ever, 2016, yes. And there was a Taylor Swift song coming out and all of these things were going on. We had bought Taylor Swift tickets for the following summer. 
you know, then she died. And so after her death, we were on the road. So 2016, we were driving. New Year's Eve, we were driving. Same with 2017. I didn't want to be anywhere that would indicate a party was happening. So both of those years, 2016, 2017, and I believe 2018, we were traveling, driving the first two years. And then 2018, we flew down to Tampa. And I know that we came home. I believe we came home either New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. But regardless, even if we were at Disney, it wasn't about New Year's Eve. It wasn't the countdown, none of that. It was just another night. And that really is how it's been, you know, since Molly's death. The COVID year, we were stuck at home, but I know that I think we just went to bed. I don't know that we did anything, you know, oh, yeah, it's New Year's Eve. And then, you know, last year, 21, we were, you know, coming home from Florida with a baby. I believe we drove and I think we were, yeah, in the car. Like, again, not celebrating it. So I don't know about this year. I'm giving this podcast before New Year's Eve has arrived. So when you hear it, it will already have happened. We will be traveling home January 1st. My hunch is that wherever we are, whether we're at Disney or whether we spent it at Debs, that it will be mellow and, and not anything out of the ordinary, just because that's how it's been. I will say you can't change the number on a calendar and not feel that time has passed and that, that a milestone has been reached. We all had a very hard time when 2016 turned into 2017. It was a year in which Molly would never live as a human. And it was really horrifyingly hard for all of us. Going into 2016, we never knew, never thought for a minute that Molly wouldn't be with us. And so it was tricky. When I think of New Year's Eve and I think of movies, there are so many fun ones, you know. Well, Groundhog Day isn't about New Year's Eve, it's about Groundhog Day. But what I like about it is it's a day and it's over and over and over again. The movie Sleepless in Seattle, when they meet on New Year's Eve on top of the building. There's great movies that go into New Year's Eve and all that. Well, the movie New Year's Eve. Actually, that's a fantastic movie. When I suggest all of you watch. Yeah, that was a big New Year's tradition when I was friends with Robin. So as much as I don't miss my friendship with Robin, she brought in lots of fun activities. She was great at planning these fun activities. She was great at getting other people to host them too. She was masterful at that. But there was a movie called New Year's Eve and there's a sequel or a similar movie called Valentine's Day. And then there's one called Mother's Day. And there are these they're fun movies with three or four different plots and full of really famous people. And so New Year's Eve has all these different storylines and it all culminates on New Year's Eve in New York City. Somebody's singing and somebody's falling in love and kids are being allowed to stay out late. And it's all famous, famous, famous people. Some of the famous people have big roles and some have these little teeny roles. New Year's Eve day activities became much bigger. When Molly and Gracie were little, we often did a campfire. We did them, we did campfires on Christmas Eve for a while when they were really little, when we didn't have any Christmas Eve plans. We just had a neighborhood campfire. And we would do another one on New Year's Eve. And again, that would be over by 10 o'clock because why? We have little kids and we're not going to stay up all night, you know, looking at a campfire. So I have to say, I have always managed to do sort of fun things on New Year's Eve and create activities and things that were fun, you know, for kids and adults alike. I'm not sure what we'll do for Dak. Whatever this year brought us, it involves traveling and, and being away, which is sort of the traditions we've set for ourselves since Molly died. So I don't know. I don't know what he might want us to do. I don't know. It's one of those things I don't, I don't like to make plans anymore, holiday things or activity things, because you just never know what's going to happen. And I think that's, that's a big piece of why holidays can be tricky for me. I'll move away from the new year. So, so we're going into a new year. My podcast is now a year and four months in, and I'm starting season seven. So I'm understanding that seasons are different for different podcasters. Sometimes it's just a chunk of episodes and then they take a break and then it's another chunk of episodes and there isn't a theme or anything like that. Then for me, 
every season has been a bit of a theme. Season six sort of got out of hand. Season six could have been two seasons. Season six itself could have been high school and middle school, which is what I thought it would be, high school and college rather. And then season seven could have been my childhood. But, you know, I just kept going into, you know, I just thought, you know what, let's just keep going with season six. And so it became a much bigger season than I thought. Lots and lots of episodes. But the whole gist of my podcast and tracing the steps back to Molly's death and all of the self-analysis and self-growth, in the process of starting this, process of really looking at what were my thousand tiny steps? Where did all of this start? I began to really, really learn and really see. And I knew, I knew before I knew <laughs> that the steps to Molly's demise and, and either me not being with it enough to save her or the universe setting a path for me that would prevent me from saving her because maybe I wasn't supposed to, began in 2005. And so that's where season seven will start. Lots of things happened that year and lots of things were in the, in the mix of beginning to happen that year. It's going to be very, very hard for me to tell the story. It will include a very, very troubling, intense, kind of wonderful at times, awful friendship with Amy, my friend Amy. It will include all sorts of details about my a greater understanding of what was going on in that family and deciding to help Roy. It will go into my falling in love with Roy and the dissolution of my marriage. And it will go into my job loss and all that happened to cause that job loss and the people involved. And then the years following the job loss and, and Roy and I in this sort of, you know, treading water, what are we doing? The number of times we talked about where are we going and what are we doing? And then we would just sort of fall back into these patterns and habits. All of it, right up until Molly's death. And actually the years after Molly's death, I had two really black years. And then I had some reconnections with Roy that didn't at all go the way that I thought they would go or wanted them to go. And I, and I sometimes sit back utterly puzzled that I can have all of these things have happened in my life. I know that by sharing a story, I leave myself wide open for judgment. Well, I'm just going to tell my story. And those that are a part of it or involved in it will know <laughs> the truth of it. You know, I can't make up a story that isn't true. Too many people are involved. I also know that truth is a very personal thing. I had a conversation about history with somebody at CrossFit and how history is a story, someone's story. A part of history is the story itself. Part of it is the reason the story was told. And that really resonated with me. If I were to tell this story to be spiteful and mean, then I'm adding a really negative spin to 12 years of my life. And that's not right. I could spin the story a number of different ways. Everybody can. I know that this story, my story has been spun to be completely inaccurate by a lot of people. People get uncomfortable with the truth and they want it to be a certain way. I think if you were to ask Amy, if you were to ask Roy, if you were to ask Chris Rath, the superintendent, if you were to ask Kenny, if you were to ask, you know, the children involved that were old enough to figure it out as time went along, I think if you were to ask people that knew us, the attorneys involved, you know, Amy's attorney was a good friend of mine once. I coached Roy's attorney's kids at track camp. Lots of connections. And I think if you get a different story based on who you asked. And that's because we pull into our storytelling and our memories, what resonates with us, what we remember, what stuck out. In the next several episodes, I will be very honest. I'm just going to be honest. I'm not going to hide behind names and things like this. I'll keep people that don't have a voice anonymous or unnamed, but a lot of this information is public. And if something is public and can be researched, then I, then I feel comfortable speaking it as it is. I'm saying all this because I want you to be ready. Buckle up. Some of these episodes might not be the ones you listen to while you're cooking dinner with your kids at the table. 
these might be episodes you listen to with a pair of headphones on a walk. I'm excited about it. I feel like it's necessary. I feel like I have analyzed my whole life. And in my self-analysis, the first thing I always do is ask myself, what did I do wrong? What do I own? To whom do I need to offer an apology? A really big piece of AA is making amends. You make amends for those that you've hurt. And if you can't make an amend to somebody because to do so would hurt them more, then the way that you make your amend is to change your behavior and to not do that again. And so I've taken that to heart a lot in manifesting this next season and how I want it to be. Once this season is done, I'm going to get into changing the podcast up. Of course, I'll always have stories about myself because I'm that kind of person, but I'm going to start having guests. And I think it might be a bit more subject oriented as opposed to a time period of my life oriented. So it'll be different. I'm excited about it. It will be good. Just because it's 2023 doesn't mean you stop doing something good for yourself. After you've done something good for yourself, you do something good for someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody, and happy new year. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.